Well, thank you, Lawson, and good morning, everyone. Uh, Can I offer a short prayer over this passage as we uh, consider it together? Lord God, source of all light and truth and love and grace, may we rightly handle your word this morning so that we may come to know you, may come to know you better, and so be better equipped to be your people in this world today. Amen. I wonder, which do you prefer? Certainty or doubt? Are you the kind of person who likes to be sure of things or is more comfortable with asking questions? Do you perhaps agree with the poet Tennyson? Though there lives more faith in honest doubt, believe me, than in half the creeds. Or do you perhaps sympathise with Robert Louis Stevenson, who said, it's better to travel hopefully than to arrive. This uh, celebration of questioning and doubt is rather in vogue in our own day. A recent uh, writer from uh, uh, the Christian fold has said that, in his view, inviting questions is more valuable than supplying answers. And even more recently, we have uh, a book written by a Christian called The Sin of Certainty. I wonder what you make of that. And I believe it is a trend in Christian thinking today. Um, These, are, in my opinion, are not nonsensical. There is wisdom and some truth Uh, in all of these things, but I wonder if you'd agree with me too that just as there is such a thing as uh, blind faith and honest doubt, there are also such things as blind doubt and honest faith. Do you think it's also at least sometimes true that it's better, or even better, to travel hopefully and to arrive (laughs) And do you think sometimes if we are mostly interested in the questions and never satisfied with even looking for answers, that that is ultimately a disappointment, a defeat? And if certainty is such a sin, then why did Jesus once say to one of his disciples, stop doubting and Believe. As far as scripture is concerned, then there is a place for both. For uncertainty and for certainty, for doubt as well as for answers. I can't point you to a better place than the teaching of God's prophet Moses a little bit later in the Old Testament, in the fifth book, Lawson just read to us from the second book, Exodus, from the fifth book, Deuteronomy, where we read this fantastic uh, bit of teaching. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed 
belong to us and to our children forever. And there's a practical purpose for that, that we may follow all the words of this law. There are secret things, there are unknown things. There are things that at best we can only doubt, have unresolved questions about. There are other things that God has chosen to reveal. And it's our privilege, our duty, and our responsibility responsibility to search those things out and to stand on that firm ground together. What, however, has all that got to do with our Bible passage this morning? The Bible passage as a whole extends from Exodus chapter 7 and verse 8 right through to chapter 11 verse 10, but uh, Lawson, who having uh, uh, rehearsed the whole lot, (laughs) bless his heart, uh, gave us just the final part of that larger uh, passage. Um, What has that got to do with this? Um, Well, welcome to the ten plagues of Egypt, of which we have just heard about the the tenth and last one. In fact, the prediction of the last one, the fulfillment of which will come in the next chapter, chapter 12. Would you please have a Bible open in front of you? It was page 68 in the Church Bibles. Page 68 in Exodus chapter 11. So I'm going to be talking about the passage as a whole, all ten plagues in uh, in a summary kind of way, but um, focusing particularly on this last and most terrible of the plagues, the prediction of the disruption of the Egyptian firstborn both their children and their animals. So I'm not going to make it easy, either for myself or for you this morning, as you will see. As for the ten plagues as a whole, um, they do get increasingly serious in a way. By the time we get, we have um, uh, water turned to blood, we have frogs hopping all over the place, we have gnats and flies and disease on livestock, and then, for the first time, human beings are directly targeted by, uh, by serious boils, and there's hail and fire and locusts and darkness, and then the death of the firstborn. That's the plagues as a whole. Um, some of them really quite comical. I mean, think of those frogs hopping into Pharaoh's porridge in the morning and then out again. Um, even more comical in a way, a way in which the word of God mocks Pharaoh and his officials by, for the first two plagues, the turning of water to blood and the frogs, Pharaoh's magicians, and they appear to have some pretty uncanny, uncanny powers, for the, to, to, just to begin with, for the first two plagues, Pharaoh's magicians could replicate, could duplicate those plagues. <laughs> but I think the funny thing is, they couldn't get rid of the blood, they couldn't get rid of the fr- frogs, they could only produce more blood and more frogs. <laughs> They can even make matters worse. It was only God, God, through Moses, who could actually reverse these plagues. So there's something uh, 
uh, I think, rather comical about the feeble attempts of these magicians um, to, to mimic what Moses could do um, in God's power. But still, I want to deal with, the, with, these, with these plays with that question in mind. Doubt versus certainty. And I want to put it to you this morning, that at least for myself, there is, as we approach these plagues, a set both of questions and of doubts, unresolvable questions for me, and also some certainties. Some things that we cannot know or do not know and things that we can and should uh, know and, and be sure of. So here's the first of these questions. How did the plagues actually happen? Assuming that they did happen, pretty much as recorded in these chapters in Exodus, how did they happen? Were they natural or supernatural phenomena? I don't know the answer to that question. I don't know if we should regard them as pretty much pure miracles or whether we should say that God was through these plagues harnessing the forces of nature. Certainly there are plenty natural forces involved here. There's hail and there's animals and there's lightning and thunder and so on. They look like natural processes. And I'm quite sympathetic to the idea that most, if not all, of these plagues are based on natural processes. If anybody here is of a mind, you could pursue this by looking at the writings of uh, somebody like Professor Sir Colin Humphreys, a Cambridge scientist, who has proposed, along with others, a way of explaining these, these plays as, the kind, as based on the kinds of things that did happen from time to time in ancient uh, and indeed modern Egypt. Is he thereby explaining the plagues away? No. Colin Humphreys and these other writers I'm thinking of are Christians. What he's saying is that the miracle lies not so much in the events themselves, but in their timing, in their intensity, and in the fact that God through Moses predicted them beforehand. The sticking point, if you like, or one of the main sticking points for that theory, is the first plague, which says that the, uh, the water turned to blood. Now, that doesn't sound like a natural process, does it, for the River Nile to turn to blood? No, except that the Bible elsewhere talks, Joel chapter 3, echoed in Acts chapter 2, of the moon being turned to blood. I don't know anybody who thinks that the moon actually became a dripping mass of, uh, of human or animal blood. So I think it's even possible for the first play to be, uh, to be telling us the, the, the River Nile and the water drawn from it turn to the colour of blood. But I don't know. And actually, I don't, I'm actually not that bothered for the following reason. As I mentioned already, either way, I see God's hand. The Bible teaches us that God's hand is at work in these plagues, in such a vivid and traumatic way that these plagues point to God and say, he did it. 
there is a God who controls all of these processes. In Exodus chapter 5, Pharaoh mockingly says to, to Moses, Who is the Lord? And in Exodus chapter 7, introducing the first plague, the Lord says, By this you will know that I am the Lord. And in Exodus chapter 9 and verse 27, so that you may know that the earth is the Lord's. One of the things that's going on here is that God is saying, I am in control of all of creation. Day by day, in, through natural processes, and more occasionally through miracles, God is in control of the whole thing, the whole lot, the whole world. That much I am sure of. And I know too of Jesus, who commanded the wind and the waves, and whose death was accompanied by a supernatural darkness and a violent earthquake, with tombs broken open, and saints of God being raised back to life. A Jesus whose body was raised to life after three days. And a Jesus who, along with his Father, will usher in a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth, the home of righteousness. God is in control of his creation. God will not be limited to being out there watching helplessly. Nor will he be limited to the occasional miracle. God is in control of his creation. This I know. Second question. Who hardened Pharaoh's heart? As we read through these plagues, we read again and again, well, sometimes that Pharaoh's heart was hardened... But we also read that Pharaoh hardened his heart. Look back to chapter 9 and verse 34. Pharaoh and his officials hardened their hearts. They became more resolute. They became more stubborn. And so he would not let the Israelites go. It's clear that Pharaoh was not a robot, not an automaton, not a puppet, he decided to become resolute in his opposition to the people of God, to Moses, and to the God of Moses and the God of the Israelites. Clearly, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. But it also says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Do you see that in chapter 11, towards the end of our, uh, this morning's uh, passage, read out for us? Chapter 11, verse 10, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let the Israelites go out of his country. So how exactly do I fit these two truths together? Pharaoh's responsibility, he hardened his own heart, and God's sovereignty, God hardened his heart. How do I fit those together? I don't. I can't. I can't give you an explanation that satisfies me, let alone you, how exactly they fit together. 
All I can say to you is they are twin truths taught in Scripture. I can't tell. But this I know, there is a pattern going on throughout these ten plagues. After plagues two, four, and seven, so mainly the earlier plagues, it is Pharaoh who hardens his own heart. And after plagues six, eight, nine, and ten, mainly the later plagues, it's God hardening Pharaoh's heart. I'm not sure that's a coincidence. Pharaoh makes up his mind to oppose God, and in the end, God says to him, as it were, have it your own way. God confirms his own decision. The uh, celebrated Christian writer C.S. Lewis uh, uh, made a point um, uh, in the following way. He said, there are actually only two kinds of people in the end. Those people who say to God, thy will be done. And those people to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. And that is sort of describes the process going on here, as it seems to me. Pharaoh says to God, my will be done. And Pharaoh in the end says to God, okay, I'll leave you with the consequences of that decision. I'll respect that decision. But you know, this hardening of heart, this strengthening of resolve against God is not peculiar to Pharaoh and his officials. In Scripture, God's people themselves are urged not to harden their hearts. Psalm 95, echoed in Hebrews chapter 3, Today, if you will hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Words addressed to professing believers, people like you and I. Do not harden your hearts. So there is an urgency about examining our own hearts. And to use a word that Richard used earlier in our service, allowing God, praying for God to soften our hearts, to be, to be malleable to his word and to his will. Permit a quote from an old Christian, uh, a quotation which I, I believe is full of passion and compassion warning us not to delay, lest our hearts become hardened. This is from a, I think, a 17th century Christian uh, teacher called George Swinnick. All the while thou delayest, God is more provoked, the wicked one more encouraged, thy heart more hardened, thy debts more increased, thy soul more endangered, and all the difficulties of conversion more and more multiplied upon thee, having a day more to repent of, and a day less to repent in. Forgive both the old-fashioned language and the forthrightness of that. 
But God does plead with us, with me, with you. Don't harden your heart. Turn to him now. Turn back to him now. Third question, third and final question. Why all this destruction? We have in chapter 11 a prediction of the destruction of all the Egyptian firstborn, both, ch- both children and cattle and, uh, and animals. Why all this destruction? Could God not have done it some other way? I don't know. I cannot tell. But this I do know, that this destruction did come after repeated warnings. The first nine plagues should be seen as warning after warning that there is a God to whom we are accountable. God's patience is lasting, but it is not everlasting. And as I've mentioned already, God's people themselves are never exempted from such warnings. The prophet Amos, in chapter 4 and verse 10, has God saying this to his own people. Looking back, he says, I sent plagues among you as I did to Egypt. We can never look upon ourselves as the privileged people of God who are exempt from any danger or any risk or any threat of falling back. It came after repeated warnings. And these rights were not exempted. But also, (coughs) these plagues and this plague, as we'll hear more next Sunday morning as we look at chapter 12, became the means of liberation. Back in chapter 3 and verse 19... I know that the king of Egypt will not let you go unless a mighty hand compels him. And that mighty hand was exerted in these plagues, increasingly terrible as they were. But also, even with regard to the freedom and the liberation, the, the Egyptians were not exempted. I don't think it's always noticed Uh, that what it says in chapter 11 and verse 3, in brackets uh, here in our Bibles, the Lord made the Egyptians favorably disposed towards the people. Now, if you turn on to chapter 12 and verse 38, you will see that many other people went out of Egypt with the Israelites, a mixed multitude, many different ethnic groups, not just the Israelites, left Egypt in the Exodus. I don't know for sure, but I, I, I wonder, putting those two texts together, whether that didn't include a small number or perhaps even a large number of the Egyptian population themselves fleeing the tyranny of Pharaoh and seeking a new life with the Israelites and the Israelites' God. And all of this, you know, points forward to another deliverance, another freedom. 
if God did not spare the firstborn of the Egyptians, then neither did he spare his own firstborn son, Jesus Christ, but gave him up for us all, for our sin and for our salvation, and with him gives us all things that we really and truly need in our life with him. I cannot tell why the Father should willingly send and the Son should willingly go to such a world as this, to such a heart as mine. But this I know. Jesus has come and he now calls each one of us to love and serve him freely and forever. If God in his word has spoken to you this morning, both from warning, either from warning or from promise or, for, or, 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 or from both, then please don't leave it there. <coughs> bring your questions to God, bring your doubts to God, and he will deal with you faithfully. Speak to or pray with somebody sitting near to you. Speak to Richard or myself. Come along, announced or unannounced, to the second week of Discover course on Thursday evening here in the meeting place at 7.30. But don't leave it there. I cannot tell certain things, but this I know. We're going to stand and sing through some of those truths as they, as they have been revealed to us in the Lord Jesus Christ as Richard, our organist, leads us. Please stand as we sing together.